0: China has emerged as one of the 21st century's most consequential nations, making it more important than ever to understand how the country is governed. Welcome to Pekingology, the podcast that unpacks China's evolving political system. I'm Jude Blanchett, the Freeman Chair in China Studies at CSIS, and this week I'm joined by Kelly Tsai, Dean of the School of Humanities and Social Science and Chair Professor of Social Science at the Hong Kong University of Science and Technology. Today we'll be discussing her recent work on the evolving nature of China's political economic system. Kelly, thanks for joining us.
1: Thanks for having me, Jude. It's an honor to be here.
0: So we're going to be discussing two co-authored papers throughout the discussion. And just for the audience's sake, I'll read the titles now and we'll put a link to them in the show notes so folks can can go find them. But the first is called Structural Power, Hegemony and State Capitalism, Limits to China's Global Economic Power, which was published in Politics and Society. And the second paper uh, is called China's Party, State Capitalism and International Backlash, from Interdependence to Insecurity, which was recently published in International Security. And I think the second paper was also excerpted for Foreign Affairs, if I'm not mistaken, correct?
1: Yes. Um, kind of different versions with different levels of emphasis have been published in Current History and Foreign Affairs, and we have a forthcoming Cambridge Element coming out.
0: Okay. So number of different places people can go Find Some of this, depending on how lazy they are, they can go to foreign affairs. If they're more ambitious, they can go read the full thing from the journals. Before we get into the, the papers, I wanted to first ask if you can give us a, a bit of background, particularly just a, an intellectual career trajectory. I'm curious how you got interested in studying China's political system, how you got interested in, in studying political economy, and what were some of the influences uh, either human influences or, or books or journal articles that really shaped how you think and approach the, the topics? Great question. Though I'm not sure
1: the influence was initially intellectual. I worked at Morgan Stanley and Women's World Banking for a couple of years before returning to graduate school and my initial dissertation topic was actually really narrow. I wanted to look at gender differences in rotating and credit savings association participation in Southern Fujian. And my advisor, Andy Nathan, really tried to talk me out of it. He he thought it was just way too narrow and I would marginalize myself, but I was determined to focus on women microentrepreneurs and how they cooperate informally to raise financing for their businesses. And once I started doing field work in the mid-1990s, I found it wasn't just women who were relying on informal finance. The entire private sector, as far as I could tell, was engaging in very creative forms of financing that were not sanctioned by the People's Bank of China. To private entrepreneurs in China, that just seemed normal. That was what they had to do to get by. But to a graduate student trained in Western theories of comparative politics and political economy and having worked on Wall Street, I just thought it was absolutely amazing that an authoritarian regime with a centralized and financially repressed banking system could have that much scope for informal financial innovations. So my interest in China's political economy was really empirically and puzzle-driven. And there hasn't been a dull moment since then, 25 years later.
0: The work that you've been doing with, with some of your co-authors, it, which has been so interesting, fascinating, and also well-timed, it, it really has started to land at, at a time when a lot of us are uh, regulators, policymakers are really struggling to actually just describe what China's economic system is. Words like state capitalism, which is the generic title that we've used to describe, feel like they, they're not... They don't have as much purchase or as much descriptive ability anymore because of either some new features or revitalized old features, revitalization of the party. So um, I have just really learned a lot from the work that you've been doing with Meg Rithmeyer and Margaret Pearson and, and others to really explore this topic. Before we, we get into the papers, one of the things about your work is really focusing on the history of China's economic development, focusing on the history of China's reform process as a necessary prerequisite for really understanding where China is today. That seems kind of obvious, but it's also much ignored, I think, especially in some of the policy discussions. And so I wonder if, if you can give us a potted history or a snapshot of why reform era economic history still matters, even in an era that many people are saying is kind of post reform. You know, How does that reform era history shape some of the characteristics of China's actual existing economic system today? Sure, that's a a great
1: question. And I think it is really important to remember that China's reform trajectory since the late 1970s has always been quite distinct from that of the reforming, you know, for the former Soviet Union and Eastern Europe. China's reform process was always and continues to be experimental, gradualistic, and subject to debate between reformers and interests that are more reluctant to reform. And even though the People's Republic of China has had five-year plans since 1953, much of the reform era has been improvisational and reactive. Dismantling the entire socialist economy through privatization and full marketization was never the overarching goal. Instead, China's reform era leadership has often had a ambivalent attitude towards the private economy. While the state sector and foreign capital have had a privileged position relative to the domestic private sector, and especially compared with American capitalists in the 19th century or Korean ones after World War II, China's capitalists have been relatively weak in dealing with the state. Private enterprises in China have always faced restricted access to bank credit, higher rates of taxation, and greater predation by government officials relative to state firms, so that's a key legacy that distinguishes China from other patterns of political economy that we're familiar with.
0: I want to just now talk about the first of the two papers, or at least reference it for this first question. This is the paper in Politics and Society. So the paper argues that using more traditional metrics to look at China's economy can lead to overestimating China's achievements, and it's you know it's quote. It, I'll need you to explain this hegemonic potential. So first, you know, what are some of the traditional metrics that our people are relying on? And actually, you know, for those of us who aren't in the in the academic tribe, what does it mean if we're thinking about hegemonic potential?
1: Traditional metrics of measuring a country's economic power include indicators like the size of the economy, GDP, industrial output, or volume of world trade, levels of foreign direct investment. And looking at these standard indicators, the Chinese economy seems formidable. It's the world's second largest economy with nominal GDP of nearly $18 trillion in 2022. It's the world's largest manufacturer and exporter. It has the largest labor force in the world with nearly 778 million workers. In the 2021 Politics and Society article that I co-authored with my former graduate student, Liu Mingtang, he's now at Johns Hopkins, we point out that the metrics for global economic power have actually changed pretty significantly over time. It's, I think it's really critical to take a, a long historical view of these issues. During the age of mercantilism, which was from the 15th to the early 19th century, international trade represented the dominant arena of economic competition and marked a country's relative economic power. So you had, you know, seafaring empires like Portugal, Spain the UK. And so, naval power and the share of global trade and colonial possessions were the main indicators of imperial dominance during the age of mercantilism. But in the age of industrial capitalism, which goes from about mid-19th century to the late 20th century, is really trade, modern financial institutions, and domestic industrialization that became more important than, let's say, colonial possessions, which became more of a burden and anachronistic. Now, by the time that China's economy really took off in the 1980s and 90s, it was the age of neoliberal globalization which marked a shift away from national production and the emergence of global value chains coordinated by different transnational corporations across territorial boundaries. So to translate that, whereas production may have been occurring in within a particular country with just some resources imported abroad, under neoliberal globalization, many different components are coming from all over the world to comprise a single phone, <laughs> for example, or a single computer. So in the contemporary configuration of global capitalization with global supply chains, cutting-edge competition for profit derives from controlling the most value-added part of the global supply chains. So earlier measures of national economic power, such as trade volume and industrial output, they're just too blunt as indicators to indicate value-added and industrial competitiveness. A product may be manufactured and exported by one country, but most of the profit goes to a transnational corporation based elsewhere. So the most meaningful measure of relative economic power in the global economy these days is looking at which countries have the multinationals that are dominating the highest end of the global value chain. And a key measure of that is the transnational index scores of companies, which is just calculated based on a company's weighted share of overseas assets, sales, and personnel. Now, even though China is the world's largest exporter, China's companies are actually still largely domestic-oriented, and this is reflected in their transnational index scores. Most Chinese transnational have TNI scores of less than 50, while nearly all of their global counterparts have scores well above 50. And just looking at the volume of China's exports actually isn't enough, because foreign invested companies have accounted for over 80% of the share of China's export value in medium and high-tech industries since 2002. So in addition to dependence on foreign direct investment in the export sector, China also depends really heavily on the foreign supply of intermediate goods and components. And a key indicator of industrial upgrading, global value chains is looking at the degree of forward versus backward participation. So backward participation is the ratio of foreign value added in a country's gross exports. By contrast, forward participation refers to the ratio of domestic value added in a country's exports abroad. So forward participation in global value chains means that a country is able to supply components for other countries trading activity. Well, backward participation shows that you're really dependent on imported components for your export sector. So compared with the US, Japan, and the UK, China has a much higher level of backward participation,
0: while its forward participation is relatively flat. What is hegemonic potential? Just how strong and powerful China can be?
1: Yeah, if we're talking about economic hegemonic potential, it is about controlling the highest end of the supply chains in strategic sectors that are most important to the world. So hegemonic potential also means, yeah, it it means control over the the value added, the productivity, the resources. And there's also a non-material component to hegemony, which is the ability to influence other countries, uh, agenda setting and establishing the norms of economic transactions in the world economy.
0: Just going back to the China question and hegemonic potential. So if we were using, you know, how, how do you think about China right now in terms of sort of its global power? There's a debate right now in, in Washington trying to think about, you know, some are arguing that China's, you know, China has a peaking power. I, you don't hear many people say collapse, but you certainly hear a rising tide of people saying you know, the best days are behind it, you know, all the headwinds that are coming into play. I think if we're we're looking at the fruits of China's industrial policy uh, in terms of producing winners in the semiconductor space, for example, it's mixed. How do you think about the position China is in today um, and situate it in that debate of, is this the muddle kingdom? And, you know, China for the next decade is just going to be trying to, you know, continually break through the middle income trap do you see the potential for, for China to sort of the slope of the curve to get steep again? Or do you see China heading into something, you know, maybe much choppier waters? If I had to
1: uh, vote between the
0: the muddle trap
1: <laughs> or, or a steep incline uh, rise, I would probably choose the former um, because China faces a host of domestic challenges as well as a not so friendly external environment at the moment between a need to change its original growth model from being export oriented to becoming more focused on domestic consumption rates of investment have been historically high but are unsustainable it has an extremely large level of debt to gdp it's nearly 3 times now and there are demographic changes so i think it would be unrealistic to expect china to you know suddenly become the hegemon of the current global economic order or political order for that matter. It faces so many challenges at the moment that I think what it's trying to do is develop domestic capacity to rely on itself for technology because it can't rely on the global supply chain the way it could about, you know, even five, 10 years ago, getting its own house in order, um, trying to make sure it has the resources that it needs to sustain a commonly prosperous society and a stable one is going to be prioritized over any, I think, kind of like major um, externally aggressive move to increase its global dominance.
0: The second paper that you co authored, the, the one in international security, and again, various manifestations of this work on party state capitalism have appeared elsewhere. I think to start with, can you talk about why you and your co-authors felt that state capitalism wasn't a sufficient label for China's political economy anymore? You know, we, you call it party state capitalism. Sort of, what are the characteristics of it? And why does it, why do we need a new descriptor? For the past few years, I've been co-authoring with Margaret Pearson at
1: University of Maryland College Park and Meg Rithmeyer at Harvard Business School on various aspects of what we call party state capitalism. So I just want to make it clear that the concept is something that we've worked out together and published on jointly. To explain the shift from state capitalism to party state capitalism, I'd like to take a step back just for a moment to explain what state capitalism looked like in the 2000s. Basically, the state retained control over the so-called commanding heights of the economy through large state-owned enterprises and strategic sectors like finance, telecommunications, natural resources, defense, and shipping. And there was also local industrial policy in certain industries as well. But most of the consumer-oriented portion of the economy, including light manufacturing and exports, were open to genuine competition and also open to foreign investment. But by the mid-2010s, clear shifts had occurred in China's political economy, including securitization of economic affairs, expansion of party influence in firms, financialization of the state, blurring boundaries between state-owned and private enterprises, and then increasing demands for political fealty by all firms, including multinationals that were operating in the China market. And I'd like to just briefly discuss each of these changes to show how they really do mark a departure from the earlier mode of state capitalism. First, there's been a slew of new legislation that effectively securitizes firms and other economic actors. And by securitize, we mean that These laws explicitly describe national security roles to Chinese firms. The 2015 national security law obligates enterprises to uphold national security and cooperate with national security efforts. The 2016 cybersecurity law requires network providers to provide technical support and assistance to state organs related to national security. The 2021 data security law expects enterprises and individuals to protect data security and prohibits them from providing critical data to foreign countries. And that's just a small snapshot of all the legislation. Now, meanwhile, the parties also stepped up the establishment of party branches in firms. State-owned enterprises and large private firms have long had Communist Party branches, but over the past decade, the reach has expanded to over two-thirds of all non-state firms now have Communist Party branches, and this includes the China-based offices of multinationals. Third, under party-state capitalism, we've also seen the expansion of state capital well beyond firms that are majority-owned by the state in a process that Barry Naughton and others have described as financialization of the state. There are now these state-owned capital investment companies that invest in non-state firms to advance industrial policy goals and also generate returns in important economic sectors. And these investments usually take the form of state shareholding firms acquiring minority stakes, usually less than 3% in non-state firms through purchases on equity markets. And party state entities have also been purchasing 1% stakes called special management shares in tech firms that give them one seat on the board of directors with veto power over ideological content. They're called the editor-in-chief, but they really have veto power over ideological content. A third development under party state capitalism is blurring in the boundaries between the state and private sectors. And I know that you've written on this as well, Jude. The parties actively promoted mixed ownership since 2013. This means that the private capital has been allowed to acquire minority stakes in SOEs. And in theory, this partial privatization is meant to make state capital more efficient. By 2017, over two-thirds of all central state-owned enterprises were mixed ownership. Meanwhile, state-owned capital investment companies and venture capital have also been investing in private companies. So these cross-shareholding practices are blurring the traditional distinction between the state and the private sector. And then finally, while firms have always been expected to respect the political boundaries of the party state. In the past five years, firms have been under increasing pressure to demonstrate political fealty, and this expectation of political correctness extends to multinationals operating in China. A growing number of foreign brands and organizations have been pressured to apologize for various political faux pas, mainly relating to how Hong Kong, Taiwan, and Tibet are portrayed in their advertisements, websites, or social media. In our international security article and forthcoming Cambridge Element, we have a table that lists all the major foreign brands and multinationals that have apologized to China for political errors. And these are household brands like Apple, Audi, Burger King, Gap, the NBA, Tiffany, Versace, and and so forth. So taken together, securitization of the economy, expanding party influence in firms, financialization, blurring lines, boundaries between state and private enterprises, and demands for political fealty. These are all trends that constitute a clear shift from state capitalism of the early mid 2000s to what we see now in China.
0: Also in your article, you talk about the presence of a security dilemma, or you use the lens of a security dilemma to examine China's economic expansion. So I wonder if you could talk a bit about that dynamics of a security dilemma and and how they apply to China.
1: In the study of international relations, the security dilemma concept refers to the paradox of how one country's efforts to enhance its own security has the unintended effect of making other countries feel less secure due to uncertainty about the intentions of the first country. And in the study of international political economy, the concept of liberal institutionalism expects trade and interdependence among countries to reduce the likelihood of conflict between countries. And these expectations were generally borne out during the first three decades of China's reform era. Influential voices made the case that China's accession to the World Trade Organization would have a liberalizing influence on domestic politics and that economic engagement with China would lead to the diffusion of liberal international economic norms and practices. But in recent years, there's been a sharp backlash against economic engagement with China, including calls for decoupling from Chinese firms in key supply chains. So instead of economic interdependence serving as a basis for cooperation, now there's security competition with China in the economic realm. And there's conflict over firms, which means that economic interdependence can be, can lead to significant tensions among major trading partners. Now, the reason that we conceptualize tensions between China and the U.S. and other OECD countries as a security dilemma in the economic realm is because it was China's growing perception of increased domestic and external threats that prompted the shift from state capitalism to party state capitalism in the first place. And I'd like to point out that many of these perceived domestic and external threats were apparent years before Xi Jinping took power. So domestically, there was a global financial crisis in 08, which, you know, Emphasized the unsustainability of China's export led growth model. There was rising instability already apparent during the Hu administration. There were protests in Tibet and Xinjiang in 2008. So that's all domestic. Meanwhile, there were a growing number of perceived external threats starting in the mid to late 2000s. There were the color revolutions, the global financial crisis again, Arab Spring, Snowden revelations in 2013. So all of this taken together prompted China to start taking measures to make itself feel less insecure. And those actions in turn made other countries, especially the US and other OECD countries feel less secure about China's growing economy.
0: You know, on that, Kelly, just to maybe posit the the current round of this is now, and and I was with our our mutual friend Barry Naughton yesterday at a conference and he was talking about Just summarizing China's current economic strategy of basically fortifying the country from, to to be able to blunt the effect of or circumvent what it sees as this kind of embargo strategy that the United States is pushing, right? We're going to deny China access to, you know, key technologies. We're going to be thinking about ways that we can and have sanctioned China. And China then is building up this um, set of tools to be able to, again, you know, use the renminbi more for, for, you know, cross-border transactions. We just saw, we're recording this on February 16th. This morning, the news came out that China, I think for the first time, used its unreliable entity list and put two U.S. defense firms on this. But this is part of this sort of economic statecraft or economic warfare toolkit that China has been, you know, producing over the past five years. You mentioned some of the raft of national security legislation that's come out. So it does seem, you know, to strengthen your argument, we're now seeing this continue, right? We're now, you know, China responded and created this, you know, party state system uh, out of a security dilemma. We then responded by you know, responding to this party state model, China's now responding to our response to this party state model, and on and on and on and on it goes. I'm curious in your work or just speculative, how does one get out of a security dilemma given, I mean, just looking at this, this seems so damn entrenched. How do you think this evolves next? Is there some, and I'll, I'll shut up in a second, but is there some point at which if the two sides actually do a little bit of selective decoupling, that that can actually reduce some of the security concerns and you might get to some steady state equilibrium led by decoupling where you can coexist because basically we're not in your core network and you're not in ours anymore.
1: I think your observation about the downward spiral is spot on. It's become kind of a tip for tat downward spiral of mutual suspicion, which is, is very concerning and ultimately doesn't bode well for areas of mutual interest, cooperating in areas such as climate change or green technology. These are areas that we don't have to uh, be competitive in or necessarily have, you know, national security implications. So the suggestion of partial decoupling could make could well make sense. I think what makes a security dilemma especially difficult to break out of is lack of mutual trust. And so the question is, what are the areas in which there are it's still possible to have mutual trust and cooperation and emphasize those dimensions of the Sino-US relationship or the US-OECD relationship. And then to the extent that neither side is relying on a highly sensitive technology, then there
0: isn't as much of a basis for that sense of insecurity. Turning back to the paper for a second, and just a final few, few questions here, You know, a good chunk of the international security article is looking at how this party state capitalism model has provoked a backlash globally, which has some pretty significant knock-on effects uh, for China. And by the way, I just, I thought when I was reading this paper, I thought of, it's a very nice intellectual heir to Mark Wu's, you know, the China Inc challenge to the WTO, which is just an, an awesome paper, which... You know, I, I just remember reading that and having such an impact on on my thinking. And I feel like the the, the paper you've done here is very much in that tradition. How do we incorporate party-state capitalist country into our existing economic, you know, regulatory institutions and and norms? Seems difficult, and maybe that's one of the reason. And now this is the question. It has provoked a backlash. So, can you talk a bit about? What does this backlash look like to party state capitalism? And I think an important question, do you see Beijing adapting, responding to the backlash in ways that might bring China back into more close alignment with you know, traditional economic regulatory norms? In other words, do they see that the path forward is getting narrower because political systems are looking at this party state capitalism and becoming concerned And that might provoke China to to rethink some elements of its current approach.
1: Okay. Uh, There are two parts to your question. So the first is, what does the backlash look like? And uh, one expression of backlash is just heightened scrutiny of reviewing investment from China. So the U.S. has the Committee on Foreign Investment in the U.S. that uh, can block attempted investments by Chinese companies into tech firms and other strategic sectors in the U.S. The U.K. similarly has a national security and infrastructure investment review process that it launched targeting China. And France, Germany, and Italy initiated EU-wide discussions back in 2018. You've got Taiwan and South Korea similarly restricting Chinese acquisitions and the Australian Foreign Investment Review Board. So many countries have established review procedures really focusing on Chinese acquisitions. And then, so those are that's heightened scrutiny of investment from China. There have also been punitive measures levied on large Chinese firms. So Australia banned Huawei from 5G. Uh, there's the US National Defense Authorization Act, the EU Toolbox for 5G Security, and all sorts of new initiatives have emerged to manage the perceived China threat. So there was the US's uh, Department of Justice's China initiative that lasted from 2018 to to, uh, February 2022. And there's been discussion of a new NATO to counter economic threats. Plus, there's also discussion of a potential review of outbound investment from the US to China. So, taking all this together, (laughs) if you're sitting in Beijing and looking at this coming at you, it starts to feel like the West um, or you know, the advanced industrialized countries, OECD countries led by the US are ganging up against China and trying to prevent it from gaining the technology that it needs. And so that, in my mind, leads to you know further reinforcement of their justification for their industrial policy made in China 2025 and their military uh, civilian fusion approach to technological development. Your question about whether this might lead leaders in Beijing to rethink their current strategy, I think, you know, recent statements um, such as at the Central Work Economic Conference in mid-December and also at the World Economic Forum in Davos recently, they were saying all the right things, that they do not want to be isolated. They want to trade. They want to engage. The tech crackdown is over. They practically announced that <laughs> and COVID restrictions have been lifted. So it seems like there have been some efforts to assuage investors' concern that China's just, you know, gone off the deep end <laughs> and, and is
0: going to be very difficult to engage. I think there there are some efforts to do that for sure. But I guess the argument is, you know, the, the core elements of that party state capitalism that you all outlined in the paper are are unlikely to be substantially revised downward in the current climate, right? So even if there's a rethink on specific policies, not on the underlying architecture of of its current political economy.
1: That's correct. I, I think the expressions of party state capitalism have become fairly well institutionalized. It's not very easy to undo financialization overnight, or mixed ownership enterprises, or the influence of, party cells those are mechanisms of control that the party is not going to want to relinquish anytime soon
0: just as a final question and there's no necessarily right answer but I'm I'm curious where does this evolution in china go next if it seems like the the most recent phase has been the partyization you know of of everything I just have a hard time understanding it. If we were having the podcast in 10 years and we were doing another summary paper of party state capitalism, what might it look like? What might the next chapter of this party state capitalist evolution entail, do you think? And it's it's an unfair question because who knows? But I'm curious if you have any guesses.
1: I could imagine, well, the Chinese economy is is segmented. All, All economies are segmented. You've got big players, you've got small players, right? And then Um, There's industrial variation as well. And to the extent that Made in China 2025 and the military's civilian fusion strategy works out, I could imagine a top tier of, you know, mixed-owned enterprises that are in the commanding heights of the Chinese economy. How... Competitive they will be remains to be seen at the moment a lot of money is being thrown at semiconductors there's been tremendous waste and also corruption but maybe just maybe after all that settles all you need are all you need is really one winner <laughs> Taiwan has one of them and so the question is will there be key winners after a, after a tremendous waste? <laughs> <laughs>
0: I think I've quoted it 15 times on this podcast, but I'll quote it yet again because I love it. Lauren Brandt had a a really fantastic article on the sort of evolution of China's economy. And and the phrase he uses is, you know, with China's current approach to industrial policy, it'll have the occasional Sputnik amidst a sea of mediocrity. But to your point, you know, and I think, I think Barry's made this point, Barry Naughton, a few times as well. If you've got the sort of venture capital model, you don't need to hit every time. To your point, if you've got Probably China feels like it can afford to have, you know, a thousand losses if, if the a thousand and first company is a TSMC, you know, I'm exaggerating. They won't get a TSMC, but, you know, you get a winner, you know, every thousand pulls of the arm, then then that might not be such a, you know, for Beijing, that may be an acceptable approach, you know, to industrial policy.
1: Well, the one thing that China has a lot of is people and people come with data and data is essential for machine learning and development of AI. And there isn't much, well, data privacy isn't very well enforced in China, let's just put it that way. So the fact that there's more ready access to data, I mean, China doesn't have a GDPR like the EU does, that limits access of tech companies to personal data. That's an area where China could really take off.
0: Yeah. But interestingly, right, the big story on AI recently has been chat GPT, right? So the you know, again, I'll stop referencing Barry, but just because he said a few things that stimulated thoughts. He, he was saying that he had just noticed that there was a little bit of soul searching in China over the past couple of weeks, at least in the AI world, about, you know, why the heck did the U.S. come out with ChatGPT and 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 not us? You can have lots of access to data, but if you don't have the right institutional setup to, you know, produce the, the innovation ecosystem where you can really be, you know, creating cutting edge uses of it, you know, that may be the trade-off China is facing.
1: They're they're working on it. And um yeah, I probably shouldn't say anything else, but we've been talking about it out here too.
0: <laughs> <laughs> well with that mysterious uh, coda at the end there, Kelly, want to thank you very much for joining us. I praise and talk a lot about the party state ca- uh, capitalism work that you and, and Margaret and Meg are doing often. I think it's it's just a just essential reading to make sense of what we're looking at now and to try to wrestle with um, how much has changed. And I also think it's just really important work for understanding the, the global China story, um, which you talk about in the international security paper of just how this security dilemma dynamic and reactions to it by other countries is just such a, a critical uh, feature to understanding geopolitics. So it's really a, a fantastic work. And I Hope, hope the three of you continue to work on it. And, and I very much look forward to reading and, and learning it as it comes out. So thank you for your time and thank you for your research.
1: Well, thank you, Jude, so much for this opportunity. Like I said, it's been a tremendous honor to be here. I'm a big fan of your podcast and will continue to follow. Take care. If you enjoyed this podcast, check out our larger suite of CSIS podcasts. From Into Africa, The Asia Chessboard, China Power, The Trade Guys, Smart Women Smart Power, and more. You can listen to them all on major streaming platforms like iTunes and Spotify. Visit csis.org slash podcasts to see our full catalog.